share a quick story with you guys. Some of you guys heard this already. Bear with me, all right? Because some stories you just, you just got to tell. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with wet ones. Any of you guys ever used these before? Okay. All right. Um, you know when you buy a new set that you kind of open it up and you pull out the tissue and you stuff it through the, the thing and, you know, then when you pull out the top, it's right there and you pull it through. Well, bear with me, all right? Wednesday night, I went back to use the wipes and it was a new set. So I pulled out the little white tissues, and normally what I do is I pull them out and then just push them through a little bit and then pull them through. For some reason, my finger went all the way through this little top piece, and for you guys that don't know, okay, that little top piece is a lot more dangerous than it looks, and my finger got stuck, all right? And it got stuck to the point where I was literally screaming in pain because my finger was stuck. All right, so I figured, you know what, I'm just going to pry back the little things. And apparently, my finger went in, and then normally you could just pull it out. But when I tried to pull it out, the little capture pieces were digging into my skin and screaming, screaming, screaming. I thought, well, maybe I'll call Christy, and she'll come down from the house. But my phone was back over on the table, and I was in the coffee bar area. And at the time, it seemed like a long way to go for that much pain, so I just kept screaming. And then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to yank my finger out. I'll just yank it out. But when I tried to yank it out, it dug in deeper, so I screamed louder. Seriously, the door was open, and I, I don't know why the ambulance people over on the other side of 51, I don't know why the whites didn't hear it. I mean, it was intense. And I was like, you know what, maybe I'll just try to peel back the little cups, and I tried to peel them back. But by then, the blood had stopped circulating to the top of my finger, so as soon as I touched it, it was even more pain. So then I decided, all right, I'm just going to have to yank it out. I literally thought I was going to have to gnaw my finger off. I had no idea how I was going to get my finger out. So eventually, I finally just yanked my finger out. And later that night, when we went to a, a small group with the young adults, there were like impressions, and they all heard this story, of, of that thing caught my finger. And I'm not telling you this just so you can think that Pastor Floyd is a wimp. That's not the reason I'm telling you. It was a lot of pain. Listen, Christy called the company to tell them that you should put a warning on the label. Guess what they do? They put a warning on the label. You know what it says? Do not push finger through the opening. <laughs> Who would have thought that it would be that simple? Now, when she called them, you know what else they said? And this, I thought this was funny. The lady told her, this is what the lady told her, she said, during training, they tell us not to put our finger through the opening because it will be painful. Which makes sense, because it, it was extremely painful. Here's why I'm telling you all this, because uh, sometimes little tiny things like that where, where, where it's not clear, or it doesn't be clear to me, or where it can be easily misunderstood or, or done wrong can cause a lot a lot of pain. Do not go home. Don't try to, don't go home sticking your finger through things. See, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt, blah, blah, blah. I'm telling you, it was stuck up in there. There was no blood flow. But uh, the reason why I tell you this is because stuff can easily be misunderstood. Like for some reason, I misunderstood and didn't read the sign that said, don't stick your finger through there. Stuff can be taken out of context. Little things that you think have no impact whatsoever can have a huge impact 
on your life. Now, granted, I'm not emotionally scarred or anything, other than the fact that I considered gnawing off my finger, but I'm over that as well. But here's the thing. Just like that's true in the natural world, little things that can be misunderstood or taken out of context can have a huge impact, enormous impact, lots of pain. We don't even see it coming. We don't think it's going to come. The same is true scripturally. When we look at scripture and when we're reading the Bible and when we're trying to get an understanding of the word of God, it is very easy for people to look at things and take them out of context, and it can have a humongous Impact. For example, uh, for people that are saying, hey, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, it's okay if some people think that, you know, well, Jesus Christ was this very thin, you know, Caucasian, European-looking guy with long hair. It's okay that other people think, well, it was in the Middle Eastern area, so he's probably darker, more olive-skinned or whatever. That's not going to change anything. But if we're followers of Jesus Christ and we're, we're kind of struggling with Was Jesus Christ actually God in the flesh? Did he actually rise from the dead? Those kind of things. Huge impact. Huge impact. The thing that we're talking about in the book of Revelations, though, understanding that, that's not one of the things that will have a huge impact scripturally or from a spiritual perspective. In other words, someone who walks away and reads the book of Revelations and says, well, I believe this means this, and I believe here's what these angels were, and I believe that this thing that occurred that it talks about in the book of Revelations was actually this, that's not going to change your relationship with God. Someone who says, you know, the whole, I believe in the pre-tribulation, I believe in the mid-tribulation, I believe in the post-tribulation, that's not going to change your relationship with God. It may change how we look at each other and the things we talk about, It's not going to change your relationship with God. It's not what the church calls, it's not a salvation issue. It does not impact your relationship with God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, how he views you. Now, we should always be looking for truth. We should always be reading the Bible and looking for what is God trying to say to me. And then if God is really speaking to me, he's not going to tell me that this means blue. And he's not going to tell, you know, Joe that this means red. And he's not going to tell Christy that this means brick. You know, if God is giving us that revelation, then we should all be walking away with the same revelation. But if we have different perceptions about what this particular, this book of revelations and what these things mean, it shouldn't separate or divide the church. Are you clear? Does that, does that make sense? All right. Now, I know that lots of people have different interpretations. And like I said, we've been walking through uh, trying to understand uh, what does a lot of the things in the book of Revelation, what they mean and how they impact us. And the best way, I said, to interpret Scripture is with Scripture, which is why we've been walking through a lot of other Scripture. And normally, I love having you guys turn, turn to this, turn to that. We've been kind of putting it up on the screen because we've been using so much other Scripture. So if, uh, as we continue through this series, you want to take notes or write stuff down, uh, that's great. Uh, Now, Um, As we continue walking through this, uh, we're at the point where uh, last couple of weeks we talked about, um, uh, we started with the first chapter and talked about the introduction and how the book of Revelations, God's design and intention was for it to be a blessing, not the apocalyptic end of days, you know, I'm scared to death of what might happen thing. He intended it for it to be a blessing. And it was really just God's unveiling, which is what the word revelation means, unveiling, his unveiling, his purpose, his plans for us, and his love for us. 
And um, for those of you who, who, who kind of haven't been around, one of the other things we talked about is um, the fact that uh, we looked at last week the, the letters that he wrote to the churches. And he wrote seven letters contained in the book of Revelations to seven specific churches. And we looked at their content and their meaning and their application. And there's a lot more detail we could have went into, but uh, time doesn't permit. Uh, if you are trying to catch up on uh, any of these services, uh, they should be online, I think, hopefully in the next week or two. Um, the guy that does our website, Dave Crafton, has been ill. Actually, keep him in your prayers. He's been dealing with some ongoing health issues. He does an awesome job on our website. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Uh, if you're looking to invite your friends to check it out, um, that's a great place for someone who's just trying to get a picture of who we are to go and get a start, a snapshot of the kind of things that we do and, and what we're all about. And some of the people have checked it out and we've gotten uh, lots of feedback on it. So but definitely keep him in your prayers. But that being said, if you have a Bible, we're going to jump right in as we continue this series, uh, Summer of Revelations. Uh, we are in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and, and, and we'll get one to you. And Revelation chapter 4 starts off, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, before we go on, uh, again, we're talking about all these different beliefs and all these different understandings of what it means. And a lot of people who hold to a pre-tribulation, meaning the great tribulation, this time of trial of pouring out of God's wrath, there's a lot of people that think that the church is going to be spared from it. And before any of that happens, God is going to remove the church. And one of the reasons they think that is because of this passage. Now, the book of Revelation is not in perfect sequential order. It's not in perfect chronological order. As, as we get into a couple of chapters, you're going to see there are things that John is exposed to that aren't he doesn't necessarily list them in sequential order. But for the most part, most of the events are in an, a chronological order. These things happen, and then these things happen, and then these things happen. And John uses specific language to indicate that. He says, and next, I saw this, and then this happened, and after this, this happened. And, and it, it will indicate that uh, there was a, a, a time when this happened, and then something else happened. The difficult part is when he starts saying, I saw this, 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 and this, and figuring out what does that represent. But one of the, uh, one of the reasons why uh, most people believe in a pre-tribulation, that the church will be carried up to heaven before all of these things take place is because of this passage. They think that uh, when, when, when God says, um, come up here to John, that it is a type of or a shadow of God saying to the church, come up here. And remember, John said that <clears throat> the overarching theme for the letter, the revelation, the unveiling, the revelation from Jesus Christ is that write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. He's already written what he has seen, the what was now was the letters to the church at that time, that was current, and now he's being brought up into heaven, which I believe was a physical transportation into heaven, and he says, I was in the spirit, um, and as he's transported, many people believe that is a sign or a, a, an indication or a type of the rapture 
or taking away of the church before all these events occur. Now, they also believe it because the word church, iglesia, the called, you don't see that word again in the book of Revelations until you get to Revelation uh, chapter 22. In Revelation 22, 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. In other words, this is the next time you see, you don't see the church, the word church reflected on earth. You do see the souls in heaven and, and, and the saints in heaven, but you don't see that word, the body, the spirit-filled presence of Jesus Christ on earth, the church. You don't see it again until Jesus says, here's why I gave this to you. So a lot of people believe that's an indication that from that point forward, that the church will not be there. Another reason they believe it is because you know, God is, uh, I was having lunch with Dave Crafton, the guy who does our website. Christian and I were a few weeks ago, and we were talking about, actually, Genesis. And he was talking about the fact that God is a God of process and systems. And he is. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll see processes and systems. Everything that moves in the universe is because God has created a scientific process or system to allow that to happen. And one of the process or systems that you see is that God continually... When we look historically, he continually, whenever he indicates or he initiates something like this, he always preserves the righteous, and he always preserves a remnant. Now, we see it when we look at, uh, how many of you guys remember the story of Noah and the ark? God preserved, and he says that there was not a single righteous person that could be found on the face of the planet except for Noah. So he preserved Noah and his family. He preserved the righteous, and he preserved a remnant so that he could continue his work and his will on the earth. Uh, Also, uh, Lot and his daughters. How many of you guys remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? And he preserved Lot, and we look elsewhere in Scripture, and it says that Lot was suffering in his righteous soul because of all the immorality that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was more than just sexual immorality, but that's a whole other story. But uh, uh, he preserved Lot and his two daughters. He preserved the righteous, and he preserved a remnant that could continue to carry out his will. Now, you guys know that uh, Jerusalem, uh, 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 there was um, Judah and Israel. The kingdom was split after Solomon passed away, and his son, under his son, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. One the northern, called Israel. One the southern, called um, Judah or Jerusalem. And what happened was in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was overtaken by the Assyrians. And it was decimated. But God preserved the southern kingdom, the righteous and a remnant. And then when the southern kingdom was overtaken in 586 BC by the Babylonians, God preserved the righteous and a remnant that returned, as God had uh, allowed the prophets to prophesy, that returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall and the cities. And, and, and as you look throughout these things, God always preserves the righteous. He always preserves a remnant so that he can still have his will carried out on the earth. And so that's another reason why people believe that, you know, pre-tribulation, that the earth um, will undergo this wrath, but that the church will be kept from it, and that this particular passage is an indication. Scripturally, in Isaiah 57, verse 1, it says, The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8-10. through 10, This is Paul talking to the church in Thessalonica. It says, The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. 
They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Revelation 3.10, we read this last week. Uh, This is what he's telling the church in Philadelphia. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Time and time again, we see God indicating that those who are faithful, that he will preserve them from this time of wrath. And this, he says, the wrath that comes upon the whole earth. So uh, the belief by some that this isn't talking about, you know, great tribulation, this is talking about some miniature event like the economic crisis or maybe uh, the tsunamis or something like that. But Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the wrath that's going to encircle the globe. And in Matthew, in Matthew 24, he says that this will be a time of such great tribulation, such as the world has never seen, and there will never be anything like it. And there are some people that believe that, well, we're in that tribulation seven-year period now, and every seven years they kind of push it back. Here's the problem with that. Jesus said there will be nothing like it. It will be the worst the world has ever seen. And the only reason why I personally believe that we're not in it yet, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons, is because what we're experiencing now there's room for it to get worse. We could be a lot worse off, and you'll see that next week when we start reading through uh, a lot of the seals and the judgments and all that. But uh, those are a lot of reasons why people believe that, hey, this is a sign of the church being carried up to heaven. Drop down to verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, before I continue, this is, you're going to see this throughout, where John has lots of descriptions of things that he has not experienced before. And he'll use words, uh, I saw something that was like this, or had the appearance of this. Or, or seem to be this. And he'll use all these words to try to grasp. But, but there's very few places in Scripture where we get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And even in, in the Bible, it tells us that, hey, that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard what God has in store for us in heaven. Now, here's the thing. We are used to this natural world. But now John is getting a glimpse of what takes place in a very spiritual world. Now, here's the thing. John's not an idiot. I think he's a very smart guy. And there are places where, and you guys have probably heard this, where he describes uh, these creatures and he talks about, uh, how many of you guys uh, have heard where he talks about the, there's these locusts that come and he said they had a face like a man and a tail like a scorpion that stings men. And I've heard people say, well, those have got to be helicopters. Here's the thing. I don't think John's an idiot. He may not have ever seen a helicopter, but he has surely seen a locust. And he can probably judge between something this big and something lots bigger. I don't think those are helicopters, unless they're like the little remote-controlled ones. They're probably, just what he said, we're looking locusts with stinging tails and just molded faces, and, and, and he describes it to the best of his ability. But this is where we're going to have to realize that some of the things he describes in heaven are not things that we have in existence or have been exposed to 
on earth. That doesn't mean they're not real. That doesn't mean that the Bible is just full of allegories. It just means that John is describing things that we have not seen before. That's why it's a revelation of what is to come. All right. Uh, drop down to verse 4. Let me read this to you again because this is important. In verse 4, it says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, here's the question that lots of people ask. Who are the 24 elders? Has anyone, um, anyone heard or, or, or different viewpoints on who these people were? Some people say that they're a mix of... Uh, the 12 apostles, and the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Possibly. We don't have anything that refutes that. We don't have anything that identifies who they are. Uh, the only reason why I don't believe that, because here's the thing. There were actually total 14 apostles. Okay? There were the original 12. Then Judas went out and killed himself. And I don't think he got a seat at the table. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, so that leaves us with 11. All right? Paul says he was an apostle abnormally born. And the qualifications were apostle, where you had to physically have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, and you had to have the ability from God to perform signs and miracles. Those were the signs of an apostle. Now, Paul saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And he performed signs and miracles and wrote, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament. Matthias, who was the replacement after, you know, before um, uh, 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 they went out and did all these great things, the apostles said, hey, we need to find someone to replace us. And so they pulled this guy named Matthias who we've never heard of before and never heard of since after his name appeared there. We don't see, history doesn't even record anything that he did. Not saying he wasn't an apostle, but that gives us a total of 14. Now, it's possible that the 12 could have been the 11 minus Judas. John could have been excluded because he was the only one still alive at this time. In this mid-90, 95 to 98 AD, he was the only apostle still alive. So when he was looking at this vision, it's possible that he was looking at Paul and the other 11 minus Judas, including Matthias, looking at them at the table. He probably would have been excluded because he didn't say, I see myself sitting at the table. Uh, so that's one thing. The other problem you have is with the 12 tribes of Israel, and we'll see that, is that at, for different reasons at different places, when the tribes, uh, I think there are like 29 different times in Scripture where it lists the 12 tribes of Israel, and sometimes Dan is included, sometimes they're excluded. Sometimes Joseph is included, sometimes he's excluded, and his sons, after. Ephraim and Manasseh are included. Sometimes Levi, or the tribe of the Levites, are included, and sometimes they're pulled out. So it's hard to gauge who they are. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is it's that they are 24 elders. The word, Greek word used there is presbyterios, where we get our word Presbyterian. The whole Presbyterian denomination is a, a group of elders. Um, and it's possible that they are 24 human priests, human like you and I, who have the authority as priests given by God, and so they are ruling and reigning with him, because Christ tells us that we're going to rule and reign with him, and in the Levitical priesthood, there were 24 divisions of all the priests. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in First Chronicles chapter 24, it says, with the help of Zadok, a descendant of 
Eliezer and Ahimelech, a descendant of Ithamar, David separated them into divisions for their appointed order of ministering. A larger number of leaders were found among Eleazar's descendants than among Ithamar's, and they were divided accordingly. Sixteen heads of families from Eleazar's descendants and eight heads of families from Ithamar's descendants. That gives you 24. And that maintained throughout the kingdom up until, you know, Jerusalem was captured and taken over, where there were 24 divisions. Even in the New Testament, when they had the temple, they continued this. And if you read the story of uh, uh, John the Baptist, it talks about his father, it was his turn, based on his division, to serve in his specific area in the temple. They kept the 24 divisions. It would make sense that God continues that, and that it's reflected in heaven. We don't know for sure. Some other people say that it could be some representation of 24, either mix of human and spiritual beings, or just 24 spiritual beings. The only reason why I believe it's human is because he uses the Greek word, Presbyterios, he calls them elders. He doesn't call them spiritual beings. He makes a distinction that these are likely related to some type of human manifestation. So again, don't know which way you would lean. Uh, it's not going to divide us. If some say, well, I think it's you know the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And some say, well, I think it's the 24 priests. Uh, all we need to know and acknowledge is that there is a representation of 24 elders in heaven who serve God. Now, Drop down to verse 5 and 6, and he talks more about, um, From the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, and we talked about this before. That's either the sevenfold spirit of God, or seven spiritual beings whose whole purpose is to wait on and serve God. Verse 6, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The, living, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, here's the thing quickly. Uh, he talks about the thunder and lightning that is around the throne. And oftentimes, when God revealed himself, or a new facet of himself, to people, he did it, and there was usually thunder and lightning associated, not with a spiritual manifestation, but with a physical manifestation. And in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, um, after Moses, this is after they had come out of Egypt, and it says, after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is the first time they're going to see a whole new facet of God. This is the first time they're going to experience him in this way. And in verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. 
the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. When God revealed himself to them, it was with thunder and lightning, and it's almost as if the very creations itself were shaking at the physical presence of God, now manifesting himself physically, not just spiritually. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that um, these four living creatures, these four things that have different faces and they have wings and, and they're unlike anything that we've ever experienced on earth because we're used to, we're used to like little Scruffy the dog, right? We tolerate Tabby the cat and we look at all these animals in the zoo and lions and tigers and bears and, and those are the animals, the creatures that we're used to seeing. Anything that doesn't fit that, we kind of get a little uncomfortable with. And he describes these creatures that have this weird look. Now, like I said, there's only a couple of times in Scripture where we get a glimpse into heaven. But in most of the times we do, these creatures are there. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, it says, In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were open, so he's getting a glimpse into heaven, and I saw visions of God. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. Again, here we go. Lightning and thunder, all this stuff as God presents a manifestation of himself. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Now, he's talking about the fact, what John said was, I saw each being had one face. He's talking about the fact that I saw these beings with four faces, and one had four wings, and he's saying that they had six wings. And um, in Isaiah, we get another glimpse. In Isaiah, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this is interesting because he describes them, and he says that they are called seraphs. And what is translated into the word seraph there is the same word that was used. How many of you guys remember a story of when snakes come among, came amongst the Israelites when they were uh, in the desert and they bit them all and all that stuff? That word for the snakes or the serpents is the same Hebrew word that we transfer here into seraphs. It literally means a fire or poisonous, venomy, dragon-like creature. And that's what he's describing, creatures that we never saw before, that we don't really experience on earth. So the other thing that, they, that, that he describes is, not only do I see these creatures, but I see worship taking place. When you see these creatures, you see them praising God and giving glory and honor to God. They're worshiping him. They're praising him. Uh, let me jump into chapter 5 really quick. Chapter 5, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Next week, we're going to dig through more about the seals and what each of them meant. And he says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. Literally saying that there was not one single creature, no one that could be found, not in heaven, 
not on earth, not under the earth, basically saying no one in the universe was able to open these scrolls. They couldn't find anyone that was worthy. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open a scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, this is one of the 24 elders, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if, this is where he tries to describe it again, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Again, priests serving God. And they will reign on the earth. Verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. It's not a literal multiplication problem, not a math problem. Basically saying there were more angels than he could count. Now, he says there are more angels than he could count that exist in heaven. And you're going to see, as we get to later on in the book of Revelation, where God indicates, Jesus Christ indicates, that one-third of the angels that are in existence were taken and put into a pit. So uh, however the myriad, the, the millions, however many angels he sees, there were more, but one-third of them were taken and put into a pit, and one-third fell when Satan fell. And I won't go into all the details about that, but they were cast out of heaven. So what he is literally seeing is the remaining third of the angels that existed in heaven at creation. Not creation of the planets, but when God created all the angels. There was one-third that, that fell with Satan. There was one-third that were put in a pit. And what he's seeing, the millions upon millions, which is his, his, he's probably struggling for words to describe, and I think uh, one pastor said it's literally the, the word myriads, which is not a numerical value, but just literally means bunches. I don't know what, a googleplex or a bunch, however many. He, he's, he's grasping to show that there are so many, and that's only a third of the original angels that were, uh, that were in heaven. He says, thousands and thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, or excuse me, honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, all this is going on, but the, the, the significant things to take part of in chapter 5 is the scroll, which we're going to go into detail about that, the scroll and its seals. But the other thing to take notice of is the lamb, because they, they indicate that there, he says that this is, he appeared as a lamb as if he had been slain. 
See, previously in chapter 1, he appeared to him with majesty and glory and power, with a crown and with the sash and with the bronze feet and all this, and his voice was like thunder, and he commanded him, write these things. Now he's appearing as a slain lamb, as a sacrifice, as someone who was killed for us. And it is that It's not his glory, it's not his his power, it's not his majesty, it's not the fact that he's rolling next to God that enables him to open that scroll. It's the fact that he gave his life. That's what enables him to open the scroll. And we'll get into what the scroll is next week. But the other thing that you see is the worship that takes place. Now, first, he talks about the 24 elders, okay? Then he talks about the four living creatures and their worshiping. Then once the scroll, Jesus Christ, now also take note, It's not that God gives Jesus Christ the scroll. It's that Jesus Christ comes up and he takes the scroll because he has the authority to of his own free will. And if you remember, he he talks about in the Gospels that I lay down my life of my own free will. No one makes me do it. It's of my choice that I choose to die for you. And once he takes the scroll, then what you see is the angels begin to worship him. The living creatures and the elders begin to worship him. And then every creature on the earth, under the earth, in the sea, everyone, everything begins to worship him because it acknowledges his sacrifice for us. Now, before, before I um, go on to this, I know this is a hard, hard uh, place to stop, but I just want to remind you, next week what we're going to do is we're going to stop and um, take some questions. Because I said before, we're going to try to, Lots of questions coming up. But I'm going to ask the band to come up, and uh, here's what I want, I want us to get a picture of. It is very hard for us to picture the type of worship that's taken place because there's these weird beasts that we haven't seen before, and yet they're talking, and they're worshiping. It's like some weird Wizard of Oz deal going on. They're talking, and they're worshiping God. Then there's these 24 rulers and elders, and, and they're speaking, and they're praising, and they're worshiping God. So let me, let me give you a picture of... of, of uh, what happens? I'm not going to stop for the Q&A now, but this is what I want you to do. This side, since there's almost literally only four of you, okay, I want you guys to, you're going to represent the four living creatures. So I want you guys to just stand up for a minute. You don't have to, but just stand up. And here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to repeat after me, or say this with me, you ready? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say it a little bit louder because we're praising God, all right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now hold that thought because the moment that the four living creatures, yeah, we're one up, but okay, moment the four living creatures say that, then you guys who represent the 24 um, living elders, you guys don't have to stand doing a distinction. I want you guys to say this with me. Ready? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. One more time, like we're... Okay, ready? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now go back. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the moment they stop, you jump in with, 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Keep going. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's difficult for us, just, just, just for us, to sit back and, and, and forth and say this, but what we just read is that all day it said, nonstop, the four living creatures, that's all they do. That's all they do is they sit there and they say, holy, holy, holy. They just praise God for who he is. They don't have, uh, like, a, a, you know, the drums going and the band going, although later on they do have harps. They are just standing there. That's all they do. That's all they say. It never gets old. It never gets dull because it's so powerfully true that he is worthy and he is Lord. And then every time they say that, Every time they say that, these 24 elders who are seated on the throne literally come off the throne, take their crowns off and bow down, and then they say this to God because they are worshiping him, and they just say, you're worthy, you're our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They're just praising him for being God. They're praising him for creation. And then once he steps forth and he takes the scroll, then these millions of angels join in, and they begin praising him. And then the harps come out. You guys can be seated. And then the music comes out. And then, then after they're all done singing, then they all bow down, and they all begin to worship him. See, we have an aspect that worship has to do with the type of music that we hear. It's got to be these three hymns and a message. We have this aspect that worship has to be, if there's no guitar, it's not really worship. If there's no drums, it's not really worship. That there has to be a huge PowerPoint, that's what makes the worship. That has nothing to do with it. What worship is about is us expressing from our insides, from an inner being, from the core of who we are, just expressing to God how grateful we are for what he's done and just for who he is. So we're about to enter into a time of worship, and we're not going to sing with instruments. I'm just going to ask you guys to stand with us. And we're going to just praise God for who he is. Amen. God, you are so worthy. And I pray that as we walk away from this service and we go out and we spend time with friends and family, that we don't forget how worthy you are. That our true freedom comes from you giving your life for us so that we can be free from sin, free from bondage, free to worship you for who you are. God, I pray that we would never forget, never forget that you alone are God, you alone are sovereign, sovereign and you alone are worthy of our praise, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that would worship you for who you are, that it wouldn't be about music, it wouldn't be about instruments, it wouldn't be about maintaining our level of comfort. God, that we would be a church that would be willing to throw down our crowns, bow our heads, get on our knees, and just give you praise and glory. God, I pray that we would be a church that worships you in spirit and in truth. 
God, we thank you so much for the favor that you continue to show this church and this congregation. We thank you so much for uh, the lives that have been impacted and changed, not by us, not by our singing, not by our teaching, but by your spirit moving through these people, Lord. And we pray that we would continue to be faithful to you, faithful to lift our voices, faithful to teach your word, faithful to be the church that you have called us to be, faithful to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys for coming. Um, You guys sound good, by the way, even without music. I hope you have an awesome 4th of July, and we will see you all next week.